0: But this morning, I want to talk about Psalm 1. According to Mental Health America, emotional intelligence refers to the ability to identify and manage one's own emotions, as well as the emotions of others. It goes on to say, people with high emotional intelligence can identify how they are feeling, what those feelings mean, and how those emotions impact their behavior and in turn other people. I know that emotional health, emotional well-being, things like that is sort of a trendy topic today. But let me just ask you this. Do you think that that's something that God cares about? Does God care about our emotional intelligence, our ability to identify and manage our emotions? Do our emotions matter to God? And I'll just say, I think it would be strange if they didn't, because the reason why we have them is because we are made in God's image. God himself has emotions. And emotions are one of the fundamental things that separate us from the animals. Animals, you know, get happy. Dogs wag their tail when you walk in the door or when you give them a treat. But they don't really feel joy. You know, animals don't feel the deep kinds of emotions that we are capable of because we are made in the image of an emotional God. In fact, one of the first recorded interactions between God and man in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4. And it's when the Lord comes to Cain. And remember, Cain is upset because his sacrifice has not been accepted. And it's sort of like a divine counseling session. Because God shows up and he says, Hey, Cain, why does your face look like that? Why are you angry? Should you really be feeling that way? You know, he's kind of trying to reason with him. And he warns them that, hey, if you let your emotions control you right now, you're going to make a terrible mistake. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. God was counseling Cain to get control of his emotions. You know, if emotional intelligence didn't matter to God, It would also be very hard to understand or explain the Psalms, which deal extensively with the subject of identifying and managing emotions. Like I said a minute ago, I know that this is sort of a trendy topic over the past few years, and there are many self-help books on the subject, you can find podcasts and YouTube channels and all kinds of resources for managing your emotional health or your mental health. And I think that all of those, not maybe not all of them, but some of them have their place in being helpful. But where they fall short is actually where the word of God excels. Where they stop is where Psalms begins. Because what Psalms does for us is it links our emotional well-being to our willingness to submit ourselves to the will of God. In other words, if we are going to have a healthy emotional state, the way that that will happen is by coming to think about things the way that God does. And Psalms helps us to see that. And really, the first Psalm is a wonderful introduction to the concept Um, it's first for a reason, and it introduces really the thoughts that are explored through all 150 of the Psalms. And so I would like to begin by reading it. I'll apologize for the smallness of the font. So if you can't see it, uh, you can either open your Bibles or get better glasses. Um, (laughs) But this is the entire presentation today. Uh, And so if the screen helps you, it helps you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But let's go ahead and begin by reading Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to look at this psalm with you this morning and look at it in a few different ways. We'll be looking at the promises that are made to the righteous, the promises that are made to the wicked, the negative instruction that is given to us, and then finally the positive instruction that the psalm gives shows us. And so first, let's begin by talking about the promises to the righteous. Notice that in verse 1, that the idea is that this is what the blessed man is like. And so it begins by telling us that the righteous are the ones who are blessed. The psalm is describing the person who is blessed or happy. Now, I know that we don't usually like to reduce the word blessed to happy. You know, we're always quick to be like, oh, no, it's more than that. Okay, it's more than that, but it's not less than that. To be blessed is to be happy, really in the most true sense, in the most real sense. For whatever it's worth, this particular Hebrew word carries that meaning especially even more than other words that are translated as blessed. It's the same word that uh, the Queen of Sheba uses in First Kings chapter ten and verse eight. When she visits Solomon and sees all of his extravagance and his wealth and his wisdom, she exclaims in First Kings ten, eight, Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. God wants us to be happy. And I hope that doesn't sound too heretical to you. Not just like a surface level happiness as we define it, but a true and abiding happiness, a joy that only he can give, and really a happiness that only comes from aligning ourselves with him. Happiness is not at the expense of righteousness, but true happiness is found in being righteous. And really, that is beautifully illustrated by the images that are given to us in verse 3. As we describe this happy or blessed man, verse 3 says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The images and the promises are for stability and productivity. If you could just sort of imagine what this tree would look like, like let the imagery of the Psalms create the imagery in your mind. Picture this strong tree that is firmly planted beside some water. And it's got beautiful green leaves and it's filled with fruit. It's an image of stability and productivity and the Psalm is telling us that If we will be truly blessed, that's the way that we will be. I have to tell you, I I have been struggling with this for at least a month or so to be truly stable and fruitful. And people that I know and love struggle to be stable and productive. But isn't that what we want? To be able to be people that are truly stable, to have an inner strength, an abiding calmness, its peace in any circumstances. That when we encounter adversity, that it doesn't have to overwhelm us or disturb us. We can be like trees planted by streams of water. I think the idea is that, you know, rain might come and go. You can't always count on when the rain's going to be here, and sometimes you go through seasons of drought. And so trees typically are dependent upon the rainfall, but a tree that is planted by streams of water isn't. Its roots go down deep. It taps into water that's always there. And so no matter what's going on around it, no matter whether the rain's falling or not falling, that tree is still healthy. Its leaves aren't wilting. It's still producing fruit. It's independent of its environment and its circumstances because it's tapping into something very deep. You see, this psalm is promising us that we can get the roots of our hearts down so deep into God's will that we can be like that. That even when we go through seasons of drought, even when we go through seasons of hardship, even when the rain's not falling, we don't have to be overly disturbed or discouraged. And so in times of anxiety or worry or anger, in times of loss or heartbreak or fear, we can live in the eye of the storm. We can be like in the eye of the hurricane with serenity and strength. And not only that, what the psalm is showing us is that we can also be productive or fruitful. When we learn to plant ourselves in God's will, any season of life can be a fruitful season. Again, it's not like we can only serve God in good times and only Be productive when things are easy, but hard times can also be opportunities for us too. Even suffering and hardship can be circumstances that are useful or beneficial to us. But that only happens when we are deeply in tune to processing life the way that God sees it. Having the roots of our heart go down deep and tap into that source of strength that comes from him. We'll still be producing fruits in our lives. Even if we find ourselves in a Roman imprisonment, we could write a letter to people saying, actually, this has worked out really well because I have all these opportunities to bring glory to God. We'll still be producing fruit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And it's not because our circumstances have produced those things, but it's because where our roots are, that even in any circumstance, those fruits are being produced. But if you think about those promises to the righteous in Psalm 1, you might contrast that immediately with the promises to the wicked. In verse 4, he goes on to say, the wicked are not so. In fact, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. What a completely opposite picture that is. The righteous are like this tree, firmly planted, producing fruit. The wicked are like the husk of wheat. And when the wheat is threshed, the husk just gets swept away by the wind, blown about by whatever breeze might be coming. it's not fruitful or useful for anything. And so it represents the opposite of stability and fruitfulness. Chaff has no real substance. It is totally at the mercy of the wind. And so good days and bad days are determined entirely by circumstances beyond its control. So which one is a better descriptor of you? Are you more like a tree that is planted by streams of water that is stable and serene and has a deep inner calmness because of the roots that go down deep tapping into the water that God gives you? Or are you more like that chaff that every little thing sets you off, that every little frustration is just like the end of the world, causing you to plunge into depths of despair, Or to lash out in anger? Do you live at the mercy of your circumstances? Or are you a slave to your emotions? The psalm shows us these two different pictures. And it helps us to see what God can make us but it also gives us instruction about how to get there. It doesn't just tell us like, okay, be this thing, and then it leaves us. No, actually, it gives us lots of very practical instruction about how if we find ourselves behaving more like chaff than a planted tree, that there's a way that we can gain the stability and fruitfulness that God wants us to have. And so first, let's look at the negative instructions in verse 1. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So notice that there are three things there that he's telling us that if we are truly righteous and wise, that we're not going to be doing. It seems to me like there's a little bit of a progression. You know, first you sort of like walk with people in a certain way. And then maybe you get comfortable just kind of standing there and hanging out. And then before you know it, I mean, you're kicked back and you're sitting with them. And that's just where you've set up your camp. And when we slip into negative ways of thinking and living, ways that are wicked and ungodly, that's the way it happens is we sort of get acquainted with it. And before we know it, that's just our pattern. That's just where we're living. And sometimes we've gotten comfortable there. But another way to think about these three do not kinds of statements in verse 1 is that, first of all, he addresses our thoughts. Second of all, he addresses our behavior. And thirdly, he addresses our company. And so if we want to have our roots planted deeply in God's life stream, we have to stop doing these things. Number one, don't seek or take advice from wicked people. That's how you can guard your thoughts. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You know, when we have questions about how we ought to think or how we ought to live or what's good for us, it makes all the difference in the world who we go and consult with those questions. And if we go to the wrong sources, we're going to get some bad advice. But secondly, don't take the path that sinners tread. That's actually the way that the NIV translates Uh, That second part in verse one stands in the way of sinners. The idea is you have to change your behavior. You can't be in the place where they are doing the things that they do, which is to sin. And then thirdly, don't join the world with their arrogant disposition. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. You know, that is the uh, that is the mindset of the world. That is the arrogant disposition of the world, is to look at God's things and say, that's silly, that's low, that's worthless, and to scoff at anybody who has any reverence at all for the will of God. And The psalm says you've got to stop doing that. You've got to change your thoughts, you've got to change your behavior, and you've got to change your company. And if we do those things, if if we do take counsel from the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers, what that does is it makes us more and more like chaff. We'll become more and more worldly. More and more victims of our circumstances. And so instead, here's the positive instruction, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's what we ought to be doing. Delighting ourselves in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. And I want you to notice the cyclical nature of this. Delight leads to meditation. And then meditation results in greater delight. It's kind of like the concept of an acquired taste. Um. You know, there are probably foods and things that you didn't like the first time that you tried them, but you kept trying them, and you kept liking them more and more. You know, if you handed me a cup of black coffee when I was 10 years old, I would have thought that it was the most terrible thing I'd ever had. And now I probably drink way too much of it. But that's the way that it is with the will of God, and that's the way it is with the Word of God. Sometimes we... We don't study as much as we should. We don't read it as much as we we should. Because if we're just really honest with ourselves, it's a slog, you know? And there's parts of it that are hard to understand, and there's parts of it that are not immediately relevant to us. And so because we don't delight in it, we don't meditate on it. But the promise is that the more that you delight in it, the more that you'll meditate. And the more that you meditate, the more you'll delight. Really, this applies to all scripture even those parts that are hard to read. But this is how our hearts become deeply rooted, by learning to genuinely love the will of God and trust it all the time, to let it get down deep within us. And so God has given us his law, his Torah, or his instruction for our own well-being. The British Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner wrote this about Psalm 1. The psalm is content to develop this one thing, implying that whatever really shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. I think that's a good thought. Whatever shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. And so Bible study is good. But Bible study alone doesn't help us unless we allow God's thoughts to become our thoughts. And really, that happens through the process of meditation and delight. Now, let me say a few words about meditation. Eastern meditation is normally what we think of when we hear the word meditation. Uh, And Eastern meditation generally focuses on bringing the mind into stillness, to have mental clarity or calmness. In Buddhism, there is a concept called equanimity, which is defined as mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper. It's the idea of learning to give our crowded minds the space that they need to be able to let our thoughts settle. And I'll just say, I think there's a place for that kind of thing. Uh, I've actually started practicing a form of meditation called mindfulness, and I have benefited greatly from the techniques. But it's kind of like what we've been talking about earlier, that where some of those things can help us is also where they will eventually fall short. Because where all of that stops is actually where biblical meditation begins. Because once the mind is clear, once the mind is settled, once we've allowed ourselves to get to a place of inner stillness and peace and calmness, then what do we do? Do we leave the house swept and put in order? and let seven more demons come and make it worse than it was at the beginning? Or do we fill it with good things? And that's really the idea behind meditation in the Bible. And this psalm is showing us the power of filling our minds with the will of God by learning to deeply treasure God's word. Let me ask you this. When you have done the wrong thing, whether it has been to give in to some temptation to sin, or whether it has been to react poorly to a difficult situation. Have you made those choices because you didn't know what you should do? Or is it because you just didn't choose to do what you knew that you ought to? You see, most of the time, our problem is not a lack of information. It's not like this is such a complicated situation that I just can't really figure out what God would want me to do. Often we know the right thing to do, we just don't do it. Why? Well, it's because we probably haven't given meditation the focus that it deserves. Biblically, meditation fills the gap between study and practice. In fact, the Hebrew word literally means to growl, to murmur, to mutter, or to ponder. It's actually the same word that's used in Psalm 2 and verse 1. Psalm 2 and verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That's the word, plot. And so biblical meditation is to bring god's thoughts into our minds over and over again to turn them over and to ruminate on them to think about god's word and memorize god's word and constantly have it within us until his thoughts become our thoughts we've got to learn to want what god wants to love what god loves and the more that we do that the sweeter it gets The idea of deliberately massaging God's thoughts into our minds until we learn to actually think like Him is delightful. And so He says in verse 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord. I looked at that word too. And this word delight carries with it the idea of feeling rich. I am not rich. But if you've ever had an experience in your life where you have happened upon a large sum of money, you know maybe an inheritance or something like that, then you might understand something of the feeling of being rich even if technically you're not. Because it's the feeling of security. It's the feeling of capability. It's the feeling of I have everything that I need and I'm not going to be threatened by bad things that happened to me. And the psalmist is telling us that this is how a person who meditates on God's word feels because he is. He is rich. He is secure and capable and able to deal with whatever comes up. Well, let's go ahead and finish up by looking at the conclusion. In verses 5 and 6, it kind of brings all of these thoughts together, and it says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In Gladiator, Maximus makes the statement, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And through my cursory reading of uh, the background of that, it might be an original quote from Marcus Aurelius. It doesn't really matter. But it's an idea that I think captures the thoughts here in verses 5 and 6. What we do in life echoes in eternity. That really is the concept, I believe, of heaven and hell. That those who learn to love the will of God will find eternal stability in Him. And those who don't will not last. If you actually want God, then you get Him forever. That's heaven. And if you don't want God, then that's what you get. Eternity without Him. In the end, everybody gets what they've chosen and so we have this life to decide what our inheritance will be forever. He says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So here's the final revelation from this psalm. That those who know God are also known by God. Paul picks up that thought in Galatians 4. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, notice how Paul explains this idea. Galatians 4 and verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? When we don't know God, we are enslaved by weak and worthless things. We are like the chaff that the wind drives away, slaves to our circumstances, slaves to temporary earthly things. But when we come to know God by meditating and delighting in his word, we have the freedom to be like trees that are planted by streams of water. We become stable and fruitful. Our hearts and our minds become synchronized with God, and he knows us. And really, that is the most beautiful part of the relationship. If I was to tell you that I know somebody super important, that'd be pretty cool. But if I told you that that person knows me, that would be even more impressive. And when we come to know God, what this is telling us is that he comes to know us. And it's because God is eternal that this is a relationship that will continue for all eternity. And so we have a choice. In the end, there will come a time when Jesus will look at one group of people and say, enter in, into the joy of your master. And there will come a time when he looks to another group and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So do you want to have emotional intelligence Do you want to be able to identify and manage your emotions instead of being blindly led around by them? Do you want to be blessed and truly happy? The psalmist would say then, learn to delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on it day and night. Plant your roots deep down by streams of living water, and you will be stable and fruitful able to serve God and bring glory to him. That's the lesson this morning. And like I said earlier, I needed it. And there might be somebody out there who needed it too. There might also be somebody who needs to take some action to make your life right with God this morning. The invitation is from the Lord, but we believe that we are his people and on his behalf, we invite you to do what you need to do to be in fellowship with him. If we can help you in some way, we would ask you to come to the front while we stand and sing.